0: Well, welcome to Center Church. Uh, my name's Justin. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, uh, we are really excited that you are worshiping with us this evening. If you've been around for a while, you know that, that we uh, have a heart for college students. Uh, we don't want to be a church just of college students. As Pastor Josh always tells you, it's not trying to be Lord of the Flies around here. But we do have a heart for college students. We want to see the universities in our backyard, students there reached uh, with the message of the gospel. And studies show uh, that there are three main points in life when people are most open to the message of the gospel or grow a lot in their faith. And those three points are um, if you grow up as a child in a, in a Christian home, Uh, if you are during your college years, and then finally, if you are family with young kids, the parents are like, please help. (laughs) Um, So those are the three points. So we've got Center Kids and Center College. We want to reach, we take ownership of the universities that are in our backyard. And I say all that to say, if you're a college student, I want to invite you to join us for Blue Mountain Weekend this upcoming weekend. All right, it's going to be an awesome time. It's our annual fall retreat where our college ministry, the On Grounds Campus Fellowship, uh, gets away for the weekend. It's a great time of Bible teaching, of worship, and a lot of fun, so we hope you'll join us. We think there's a lot of wisdom for college students, not only to be involved in a campus fellowship, but to be involved in a campus fellowship that's tied to a local church family. We hope that you can tie together some of those relationships, living on mission together, where you are at with what Jesus left us, his local church body, where there's multi-generational relationships and wisdom to pull from. So we hope you'll join us. If you're looking to get connected, looking for a community at UVA, you can sign up at at the table outside. You probably saw it on the way in, the center college table. They would love to get you signed up. It's going to be a great time. You don't want to miss it. Since you're UVA students, though, I do have to tell you that during the free time, we've got some free time Saturday afternoon, five or six hours, you can do homework. All right, just bring your computers. You'll have Wi-Fi. We'll let you do it. You're UVA students. You're going to study a lot. So it's okay if you're going to do that. Don't let school be a reason not to come. We'll give you some time to do homework Saturday afternoon. But we hope you join us. It's this weekend. Now's the time to sign up. We've got more people coming this weekend than we've ever had before. So it's going to be a great time, and we hope you'll come uh, with us this weekend. But let me pray for our college ministry for that retreat, and then we'll jump into 1 Peter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege that it is to be a part of what you are doing in our city and at UVA and PVCC. We pray that you would uh, just inspire students to see your grace and your gospel, to turn from sin and follow you and to grow as disciples for a lifetime of godliness. We just look forward to years and years of godly marriages and influence in neighborhoods and leading healthy churches that we pray you'll give us people that we can invest in now. So Lord, we thank you. We pray this weekend would be great, that it would be inspiring and motivating for people to see Christ clearly and then turn and follow him uh, during their time here at college. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing today through our series in the book of 1 Peter, that, as Pastor Josh mentioned, is called A Good Kind of Different. And the topic that we're talking about today is a different kind of holiness. All right, a different kind of holiness. Holiness is not a topic that we talk about very comfortably in our culture. It doesn't come up in our language day to day very much. Uh, It's not really used in common English except for the one derogatory phrase that would be holier than thou. Right? It's not a very favorable uh, term in our world. Uh, But in the church, we use it a lot. You show up, you sing holy, holy, holy. We talk about holiness. We read verses that say the word Holy. And the word holy probably conjures up a lot of different images for different people. You might have images of cherubs bouncing around on the clouds, right? You might have images of long jean skirts. You might have images of people who are just holier than thou and mean-spirited. You might have all different kinds of things coming up with holiness. Um, But as we are reading through the Bible, the scriptures don't really give us the option to avoid talking about the word holy, to avoid talking about the topic of holiness, because the Bible talks about holiness a lot. The word is used hundreds of times throughout the scriptures, and it is core and central, as we will see today, to the character of God and to people who follow God, Christians. Um, In the streams of churches that are out there, there's kind of two different kinds of holiness that play out. You've got a holiness that emphasizes truth. And here you've got churches or Christians that are more about shouting what they don't stand for, yelling at people. Again, maybe mean-spirited and some arrogance creeping up uh, that comes out at times and this holiness uh, that we see on that front. But there's another kind of holiness on the other side that would emphasize uh, grace over truth. That is loving other people, and but if you press back, just kind of a, a shallow kindness that allows other people to do whatever they want, but doesn't speak the truth of what God tells us into, in his word into other people's lives. So we have holiness on both sides. What we're going to see from Peter today in these, first, in these 13 verses is that the gospel and the scriptures actually point us to a different kind of holiness. A holiness that is radically committed to obeying God's commands and pursuing faithfulness to him but also a holiness that is uniquely humble, not arrogant, loving towards others, both insiders and outsiders in the church. It's a different kind of holiness that I believe is very compelling when a Christian community can live this out, but unfortunately is not lived out very often uh, in public ways these days. So what we're going to do is walk through these 13 or so verses. We're going to pull out a handful of lessons about holiness and what the scriptures teach about holiness uh, as we go. All right, so pick up with me in 1 Peter 1.0. Uh, verse 13, therefore, we'll stop there. All right, first thing you need to know about holiness is that you need a gospel motivation. All right, the first thing about true holiness is that you need a gospel motivation. Uh, the first word here is therefore, and a quick Bible reading tip for all of you. Whenever you see therefore in the Bible, you need to stop and ask, what is the therefore Therefore. The word, therefore, shows up at key places all throughout the Bible and especially in the New Testament letters when authors are transitioning at a transition point in their letter when they are moving from indicative to imperative. All right, one quick refresher on uh, like fourth grade English or something. Indicative is a statement of fact or truth imperative is a command. In the Bible, indicatives are statements about who God is, what he has done, and who we are in light of that. They're teaching truth statements. In the Bible, imperatives are commands from God telling us how to live. And what we need to know in the scripture is that imperatives always come after indicatives. Our activity flows from our identity as Christians. You see, all religions in human history can be divided into two categories. Religions of human accomplishment and religions of divine achievement. Our religions of human accomplishment say this be holy, indicative, to be, ex- or be holy, imperative, to be accepted, indicative. The different religions have all different kinds of paths to how you could be holy. You've got the Eightfold Path for Buddhism, the Quran for Islam. You've got some weird social and cultural norms for Bible Belt, cultural Christianity. Uh, Even the secular world has uh, ways that people are expected to live in order to be accepted. But the reality is that no matter which religion you pick from, if it's a religion of human accomplishment, then it is going to be be holy in order to be accepted. Obey the rules Play according to the rules, and you'll be accepted. Accepted. There are so many problems with this, though. So many problems with this. But the biggest one is this. A religion of human accomplishment breeds pride and arrogance. It just absolutely breeds pride and arrogance because the statement is, if I do better than you, I am better than you. With religions of human accomplishment, you, you can per, e- expect some level of outward conformity to the rules, but there's no power to change the heart. It has power to get people to, to obey and play by the rules because of what it can offer, but religions of human accomplishment cannot change the heart and the inside, and they breed pride and arrogance as we seek to be better than other people. So there's a massive issue with religions of human accomplishment. Biblical Christianity is the only religion that fits in the other category. Rather than a religion of human accomplishment, Christianity is a religion of divine achievement. All right, God has done the work, and we are recipients of a gift, recipients of a gift. Through faith in Jesus, we are given a gift righteousness. We're forgiven our sin. We are accepted by God, even though we don't deserve that based even on our best performance. Christianity does not say be holy to be accepted. Christianity flips this on its head and says you are accepted. In Christ, you are loved. In Christ, you are righteous. Therefore, be holy. This order is absolutely critical if you are following Jesus or seeking to understand more about Christianity true holiness can only be achieved with the religion of divine achievement because true holiness includes external obedience to God's commands and an internal heart of love for other people that gets rid of arrogance and pride. In the first 12 verses of 1 Peter, we had zero imperatives and a ton of indicatives. We saw divine achievement last week, right? God caused us to be born again. We have a living hope. With God, even our trials work for us, and we get to see clearly now what the prophets of old predicted in Christ, the preachers now proclaim, and the angels ponder is what 1 Peter uh, 1 said. This week, we have what comes after the therefore. After the therefore, but we need to know that the therefore is key, and that holiness, as we get into it in this passage, you need to have a gospel motivation if you're gonna live this out faithfully. All right, we'll keep going. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. All right, here's the second thing you need to pursue gospel holiness. You need a prepared mind, all right? You need a prepared mind. Christianity, in fact, starts in the mind. Now, this is kind of not widely believed by many today. In fact, there's kind of just this belief that Christianity, you kind of check your mind at the door and you start operating in the realm of faith, but that's simply not true. It's never been the case. In fact, uh, modern science was, has grown up out of the Christian worldview. Before the Christian worldview, there were regional deities and gods that operated in different ways, and there's no consistency that you could base the scientific method on for uh, repeatable experiments. But the Christian worldview taught that God created the world brought order out of chaos, and in knowing not just the word, but also the world, there are lessons that we could know about who God is, who we are, and how we should live in the world. Uh, Therefore, through the Christian message, the sciences, the the intellect uh, was born and kind of has flowed from that. Francis Collins, uh, he has held the positions of the uh, director of the Human Genome Project, as well as the director of the National Institutes of Health, He's a Christian. He's pretty passionate about teaching people that faith and reason can harmonize together. Uh, and he says, has said this, just summing it all up. Faith and reason are not, as many seem to be arguing today, mutually exclusive. They never have been. It's just true that Christianity starts in the mind. We don't need to check our hearts or our, our minds at the door. Christianity starts in the mind, but it also always moves to action. It moves to action. You see in that phrase there, it says you are preparing your mind's for action, and that phrase "preparing your minds" is literally in the uh, the Greek to gird up the loins of your mind. So that's weird words I just used, but that's what it's saying. So gird up the loins of your mind. It's so a word picture from back in that day. People wore robes. It was very respectable, very uh, very. Uh, it, you would look very nice if you were wearing a robe back then. It'd be a little weird today, but so it was is it uh, good, it was respectable. It's what you wore, fashionable. But if you needed to run or work, you're in trouble, right? If you running in a robe, you're just going to trip over it, tumble, face plant, it's no good. So what you would do is you'd take the bottom of your robe, tuck it into your belt, and you could really get down to work. It's kind of like saying, roll up your sleeves, preparing your minds for action. It is a call to, to move towards action. So let's keep going. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Again, Peter, double down, doubles down on the mind, right? Be sober-minded. Um, here Here. The connotation that he's working with is not talking uh, primarily about alcohol and not getting drunk, though that is, uh, it's talked about other places in the Bible, and uh, we should not be drunk, but should uh, be sober. Uh, What's talking about here, though, is thinking clearly about reality. Be sober-minded. Think clearly about reality, and in this passage, it's talking specifically in light of the judgment that's coming, in light of the end of your life, in light of eternity with God. Think clearly about the present. Uh, monasteries where monks live and they kind of go hide out there. They're actually known for leaving graves uh, dug and open in the middle of the monastery so that as uh, these monks are going to and from their daily habits and routines, uh, they see the open grave and it's for the next monk who passes away, right? The goal of this is there is a constant reminder of the end that provides sobriety in the present, right? How many, how many, how many, You can think through these on your own. How many of your dumb decisions are made because of a failure to think soberly about the end? Right, Jacob and Esau, you know that story? Uh, So Esau has this massive inheritance, and rather than keeping it, he trades it with his brother for a bowl of Chef Boyardee. Uh, He's hungry, and he trades it all away for a bowl of soup. Uh, We do the same thing. We have these impulse purchases. We sometimes, you know, you speak harsh words to a loved one or to your kids because in the moment you just got to get it off your chest and you're so frustrated, but we're not thinking about what that creates in the long run, right? When we step back and we think about our whole lives, it helps us to think with some sobriety. So here's a question for you on this front. What, What are you going to wish, what are you going to wish five minutes into eternity that you spent your life on? That's what it means to think soberly about our lives, to think soberly here as we're preparing for holiness. What are you going to wish five minutes into eternity, just after you die, just after Jesus returns, what are you gonna wish that you had done? That's a sobering question for us. All right, so let's keep going on in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here's the third thing you need if you're gonna pursue true holiness that Peter brings up, you need a set hope. You need a set hope. This is the first command in uh, the book uh, here. We know we talked about all the indicatives. of the first imperative, but Peter knows that if we are going to walk in true gospel holiness, our hope has to be in the right place. So hope is when a, a coming expectation breaks into your current experience that makes sense? There's a coming expectation, and it's impacting my current experience, the way I feel or think or respond to a situation, because I'm confident that something in the future is coming. So what's going on here? What's the future expectation in mind? It's the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus. Here Peter is referring to the second coming of Christ. Jesus is coming back. There's a future expectation that Jesus is going to come. He's going to judge the living and the dead. We're going to be with him for eternity in his kingdom. Peter says, put your hope in that. And let that coming expectation break into your current reality. And it's really important that we do this if we're going to pursue holiness because what you hope in determines how you live. All right, what you hope in really does determine how you live. For example, if you are hoping in a change of circumstances, you're never going to be satisfied but always waiting for the next season of life even when you get the thing that you were previously waiting for. If you hope in a new relationship, every person is a potential option for your fulfillment, romantic or sexual, rather than a brother or sister in Christ to love and to serve for their good. If you hope in attaining a certain level of income or success or status, every opportunity to make money becomes a do or die situation. But when we hope in Jesus' return, when we hope in Jesus' return, when we live with the awareness that we are going to see him face to face one day, that informs our activity today. It really inspires holiness. So another question, does Jesus come and return? Does that ever break into your day-to-day experience? Tuesday afternoon, maybe now at church, is there a hope that's kind of brought up in you as you look forward to one day being with Jesus for eternity? Because Peter says, if you're going to pursue godly holiness, true holiness, you've got to set your hope on that day. And I think in our secular worldview where we've been growing up in this and we kind of swim in this water, we, it seems so unreal that it doesn't quite break into our day today. So does it break in to you? If not, if that's not a normal ho- place that our hope is placed, it's going to be tough to pursue holiness. All right, so that's verse 13. All right, to have gospel holiness, Peter tells us that we're going to need gospel motivation. We're going to need a prepared mind. We're going to need a set hope. And we're going to move a little quicker. That was 13. we got some. We got a ways to go. All right. Let's keep going in verse 14. And here we really get into the theme of holiness. Here it is. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter gives us the fourth thing that we need to pursue holiness, and that is a clear target. All right? A clear tar- Target. Author Jen Wilkin, uh, she says it this way very plainly God's will for your life is holiness. If you got any questions about what God wants you to do after college or what job to take or how to raise your kids? Just know. God's will for your life is right there. It's holiness. Not only does Jen Wilkin say that, but God says it too, so that's good. Uh, 2, Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 4 3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. It's the same root in Greek as holiness, your, your holification. In a broad sense, this passage that we're walking through today in First uh, Peter 1 uh, could simply say, therefore, be holy. All right. Therefore, be holy. All the rest of the verses are doing are helping flush out for us what that means and what that looks like and gives us the tools and resources we need to carry it out. In this verse, Peter starts to do that. He starts to flush it out both positively and negatively. So negatively right there, he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Last week, if you remember, Pastor Josh talked some about the uh, the new birth. Um, when we're born again, we have a new identity, we have a new father, and therefore we have a new family resemblance, right? If we're born again into a new family, we have a new family resemblance, and it's, and so there are things which we were formerly ignorant of that we thought were good for us and led to our flourishing, but now we know they are not, and they no longer fit our new family. We didn't know they were sinful in ignorance. Maybe it was the way that you talked to or about others. Maybe it was the relationship that you had with alcohol, that website that you continued to go to, that friend group that really pulled you down. Maybe there are things in your life that are more part of your former life rather than the the new life Jesus has given you in Christ. My encouragement to you would be to get get rid of that today and uh, take Peter's counsel counsel seriously as we pursue holiness uh, together. So on the positive side, Peter also gives a direction. He says, uh, be holy because God is holy. And here, we'll, we'll slow down a little bit, and we're going to talk about holiness, right? This theme that's coming through. So here's r- right where he gets to the command, therefore, be holy. We're at that point. We're going to talk some about holiness. So first, what does it mean that God is holy? All right, he says, be holy for God is holy. What does it mean that God is holy? Holiness is the primary description of God in the Scriptures. This might be surprising to you. You might assume that like, love might be the primary description of God, but, it, but it's not. Uh, holy is the by far, far and away, the most used term to describe what God is like, who God is. Um, in Hebrew, to emphasize, uh, to emphasize something, you repeated it. So, for example, if I make a box of Kraft mac and cheese at my house, it's good. All right, if my family's in town, so we're kind of doing something nice, we go to Citizen Burger, that's good, good. But if Bailey and I are getting away for an anniversary, we're going on a trip, we go to a nice steakhouse and I get, you know, a nice expensive steak, that is good, good, good. The only descriptor of God repeated in the Bible three times in that way, the only one that's ever repeated to emphasize it in that way is God is holy, holy, holy. God's holiness is his absolute perfection in every way we could be and more. What does that mean? Well, he's, he's absolutely perfect in every way that we've got a shot at. Like he's, he's absolutely perfect in love and grace and justice and goodness and mercy. Like we can do those things to a degree. But it's more than that. God is absolutely perfect in the ways that we could never dream of being. He is all powerful. He is all present. He is all knowing. And maybe the most significant as we are talking about holiness is God is self-existing. There is nothing outside of God that he needs to survive. There is no calorie intake or vitamins from the sun he needs to receive, but he is self-existing and therefore is the source of everything. And here is what you need to hear about God's holiness, especially as we're swimming in our secular worldview today. God is not just a slightly bigger, slightly better, slightly wiser version of you. God is completely and utterly distinct, completely other, categorically superior to us in every imaginable and every unimaginable way. So we should not be surprised when he commands something we disagree with. Maybe, just maybe, the God of the cosmos knows better and there will be a level of submission required in our lives. For example, there's times when my son wants to do something that's not very smart. We get out of the car at Costco, and he wants to, you know, take off and, and run around. And I have to tell him no, and he, you know, lays on the ground and cries, and we do some discipline. 20 minutes later, your parents get it, and it, it becomes a whole thing. Um, and I, but I have to protect him from that. You don't run through the, the parking lot. That's not good for you, even though it seems like the most thrilling thing you could do at this very moment, right? I have to protect. Now, here's the question. What's the bigger gap between me and Sam or between God and me? Which one's bigger? Me and Sam, God and me. It's God, right? I mean, I'm not even that much smarter than Sam. Like in 20 years, he's going to be smarter than me like by, by far. It's not, even a, it's not even a competition. God is categorically and utterly far beyond everything that we do. So um, it just makes sense that there's going to be a thing that God calls us to that we don't understand. If it happens with me and Sam, it is definitely going to happen between me and God. It is maybe the height, maybe the chief height of pride and arrogance to assume that God would affirm everything that you affirm. It's just the height of pride and arrogance to assume that because God is holy, holy, holy. Peter, in this passage, though, does not just tell us that God is holy, distinct, separate. He commands us to be holy as well. The response to God's holiness includes this impulse to become holy in some small, imperfect way ourselves. See, Christians are called hagioi, the Greek word meaning holy ones, 60 times in the New Testament. It's like a normal thing to call a Christian. You're, you're holy once. Be holy for I am holy. Sanctify and holy, as I mentioned before, have the same root in Greek. Sanctify means like holify and holification. Uh, God is holy, and he graciously invites us to participate in that holiness. You think about it like this. Holiness is given by God as a gift, but it still is pursued by us to, to receive. So what does it mean for us to be holy? What does that mean? Well, to be holy means this. It means to be different from the world in a good way. All right, holiness means to be different from the world in a good way. It means that we live according to God's values and rules rather than the world's values and rules. So I want to give you an example. I'm going to try to offend both the right side of the world and the left side of the world. I'll be very, very fair. All right, so what does it mean? All right, so this is what it means. In the area of sex, All right, we keep our bodies to ourselves. is what God teaches. You keep your body to yourself. He says, the Bible teaches that sex is reserved for the lifelong covenant of marriage between one man and one woman, and to believe this, to live this out faithfully, uh, both in the world and on our computer screens and everything, that's holy. It's different from the world, says. God says, keep your body to yourself. In money, the scriptures say, uh, and God says, uh, that we should share our money with others. Money, right, is all God's and we are stewards and we should be living with radical generosity toward others because of the radical generosity that God has shown us in Christ. To believe this and to live this out faithfully is different, it's holy in our materialistic and our capitalistic world, right? Our culture says to share your body and to keep your money but God calls us to a different kind of holiness, a good kind of holiness where he says that people should keep their bodies and share their money. Right? We should be holy, different from the world in a really good way as we follow God's values and commands. And just uh, stopping here, because I know those issues are a little bit more sensitive. I think you really want holy people in your life. I think you really want holy people around you, because they are the people that are going to take care of you and love you and speak hard truths to you when you're going uh, down a bad path. You want friends around you who love you and who know God's word and are going to point you in godly wisdom to a flourishing life, but you also want a spouse who is holy, who's going to be faithful to you and is going to be pursuing you and self-sacrifice and love. Holiness is challenging in our contextual moment, but I think when we see it truly on both sides, the moral obedience to God as well as the humility and love toward other people, it is a beautiful and powerful thing in our world. As we see God's holiness, it creates in us an impulse to pursue holiness ourselves. But it does even more than that. Look at verse 17 with me. It says this, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is the fifth thing that we need if we're going to pursue true holiness. You need a healthy fear. All right, you need a healthy fear god's holiness doesn't just lead us to that impulse to holiness but but really an impulse to fear and here specifically in light of the coming day of judgment the theme in the scriptures of judgment and fearing god are tough to understand Uh, if you're a christian in here like i've wrestled with this too Of like what does it mean to to fear god right the bible tells us that we are safe because of the blood of jesus that we have eternity to enjoy with him he invites us to come with childlike faith and to run to him in prayer with boldness we have access before the throne but then throughout the New Testament, there are so many passages that say fear, fear the Lord, walk with fear and trembling, right? There are these passages that say fear, and, but, and that should lead us and motivate us to holiness. So how do these things work out? It's, it's, it is hard. It's tough. So I want to do my best job to explain it here for you. And one pastor I heard said it like this, which I thought was so helpful. He said, at the final judgment, we will be evaluated by works, but saved by grace, Right, at the final judgment, we will be evaluated by works but saved by grace. So first, evaluated by works. Our true selves will be laid bare before God for judgment. And that is, that is a terrifying thought if you have sin in your life like I do in mine. Like that, is, that is a terrifying thought. You will stand before God and your whole life, every thought, every motivation, every action will be completely exposed before him with no chance for you to spin it, no PR you can put on it, no opportunity to hide it. Right, that is a t- Can I get an amen? Is that, is that scary to you like it is to me? Yes, okay. Um, we will be evaluated according to those works. Right, We will think, I should have done this. I shouldn't have done that. I should have shared the gospel more. I shouldn't have let that habit grow. I shouldn't have treated my family in that way. It will be an incredibly hard time, full of regret and tears, even for the Christian, because we will be, we will be evaluated by works. But this pastor pointed out something else that is so powerful. He said it will be very, very hard for the Christian, but... Then it will be over because we're evaluated by works, but we are saved by grace. We are evaluated by works, but we will be saved by grace. Every tear from that moment will be wiped away, and we will worship God in spirit and in truth forever and enjoy his presence for all of eternity. This is one reason that we should be consistent in confessing our sin to one another. Right? Everything is going to be brought out one day in one way or another, And what we have the opportunity to do now is to deal with it by the means of grace that God gives us in community in his word. It is always better to confess your sin rather than to have your sin found out. And for some of you today, that might might be what you need to hear. You might be going down a path where you've been cultivating a habit and making some bad decisions and letting a relationship move on and on and on, and you need to stop, confess, and turn. It is always better to confess than to be found out, out, whether it is in the next couple years or it is on that last day. It is just a huge motivation for us to walk in confessing our sin. So we have a father, a father judge, who we are going to stand before one day. Our entire lives are going to be exposed before him. And Peter teaches that the fear of this should actually create in us and motivate us, uh, create a desire in us for holiness and motivate us toward holiness. That's heavy. and That's a lot. But Peter, with the heart of a Christian, can't stay talking about imperatives for too long. All right, look at verse 18 with me. He says, all of this, these verses so far, do this knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Right, This is the heart of the Christian faith. Again, it is human. It is not human accomplishment. It is divine achievement. He makes it clear you should pursue holiness knowing all of the indicatives that he lays out. Know these things. Know these truths. And only in that divine, ac- divine achievement are you going to be able to work out holiness. What are a couple of those? First, you were enslaved. You were enslaved. You are enslaved to sin and choose to participate in sin and rebelling against God. And we had to be ransomed. We are enslaved and choose to participate in, but in love, God made a plan to ransom us. We have been set free from sin in that ransom to worship and to serve God. Next indicative we know is that that rescue was planned. You see, it says that Jesus was foreknown. He didn't solve a problem that came later, but throughout all of eternity, he was going to save you. You were never an afterthought to God. But from before time began, God had you in mind. If you are one of his children, he had a plan to draw you back to himself through sending Christ. The author wrote your story of ransom redemption long, long ago. Another indicative, you are precious. You are precious. We see that God here did not use silver or gold, but he spent the precious blood of Christ for you. We know how much we love something by what we are willing to pay for it. And God spent the blood of his son on you. Jesus was joyful and willing to give himself for you. You are precious to God. He spent the precious blood of Jesus on you. Right, this is a religion of divine accomplishment. Christianity is not about what you can do for God, how awesome or holy of a person you are, but it's what God has done for you. And in light of that, Peter gives the command, therefore, be holy. Without this gospel, without this message of what Jesus has done, holiness is is actually impossible. Religion can produce, as I mentioned before, some external conformity to the rules, but it can't produce real holiness from the heart. You see, religions of human uh, achievement, accomplishment, uh, motivate with the carrot or the stick, right? They dangle something in front of you that you want, so you obey, or they, you know, the fear of hell, so, you know, so obey. They do the carrot or the stick. But the gospel actually does neither of those. You see, the message of the gospel is just flips everything on its head. Even though we deserved the stick of God's judgment because of our willing rebellion against him, and Jesus deserved the carrot because he is the sinless savior, God took the stick and beat Jesus with it in our place as a substitute, and then Jesus offered the carrot to us, and he was joyful and willing to do it. First John 4.10 says this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, this religion of divine achievement means that there is an outside from us, a, a separate from us love and righteousness that has come to us. When we see that love that God has offered us through the sacrifice of Jesus and his love toward us on the cross, it transforms and it changes us. It gives us a humility. We're so bad that God had to come die for me, but it gives us a confidence and joy and a desire to obey the rules. First John 5, right after that passage, it says, in this is the love of God that we obey his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Right, the gospel transforms our hearts as a love from outside of us is coming and saving us and drawing us to God. This is so key to understand because again, holiness does not just refer to not breaking a list of rules, but it actually refers to actively keeping the commandments of God, which are deep and meaningful and challenging and impossible for any human to keep. Peter addresses this in these next few verses. uh, The vital importance not just of the morality to the rules, but of love for others. Look at verse 22 with me. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This is actually the sixth thing that you need to know if you're going to pursue true holiness. All right, you need to love others. We often think of holiness as pursuing that set of rules, right? Holier than thou, I keep the rules, I'm a Pharisee, I'm keeping all the commands. But true holiness has an impulse towards a heart of love for others, of genuine care for them. We see that Peter, in his mind, he's going down the flow of be holy, for I'm holy. The next verse that he says is love them. Love them sincerely. Love one another earnestly. So these are incredibly challenging. Uh, true holiness loves others sincerely. Um, you'll recognize the Greek word that's translated sincerely here. It's on it's hypocritos literally without hypocrisy. Right, to, to love others sincerely means to love them without hypocrisy. It means to love them for their good and not using it for selfish gain. Judas Iscariot is a, is a great example of not doing this. Right, you remember the story where the woman breaks the ointment over Jesus' feet, and it's worth a lot of money, and Jesus commends her. But then Judas says, like, we could have sold that and given it to the poor. And there's a note in there that says, because Judas would help himself to the money. Right, it looked like love for the poor, but it was just, it was just hip- hypocrisy using it for himself. And then maybe the greatest example from his life is, how did Judas betray Jesus? With a kiss, with hypocritical love, love for selfish gain, for silver, for money. But before we get all superior on Judas, we do this too, I think, don't we? We love others for selfish reasons all the time, and this really is core to what people-pleasing is. Right? It is using an expression of love and service, not primarily for their benefit, but to get them to be happy with you and like you and to have friends. Right? True holiness loves others sincerely, but it does more than that. True holiness also loves others earnestly. Earnestly. That word in the Greek, earnestly, is, a, uh, is an athletic word, and it it's referring to like stretching the body to the limit. So some of you are weightlifters in here, I'm not, um, but you'll put weights on the rack, you will start doing reps, and when you get to the final few reps, you know, you'll give a blast push, your arms will be trembling a little bit, and you're pressing up for that last rep to get to the end. That's earnestly right, like pushing all the way to the end when it gets really challenging. It's the last thing that you got. That's earnestly, and that's how Peter says true holiness looks like in loving others, loving them earnestly. We're called to love others earnestly if we're going to walk in holiness. We should work hard, pressing, fighting to love one another past our comfort level, but unfortunately today, again, that kind of love is, is just discouraged, right? We say cut toxic people out of your life, Right, rather than looking for an opportunity to love others earnestly and to display the love of Jesus uh, that he had towards us, which, I mean, we were toxic, he had to go to the cross for us. We, we cut them out so that our lives are easier. Or in the language of self-care and me time, and even sometimes Sabbath, we kind of use it as an excuse not to love others earnestly, but to, to be selfish and to uh, get out of needing to do that. But gospel holiness, true holiness, loves others earnestly, pressing on especially when it is hard, this kind of love, this kind of pursuing holiness in this way is hard work. You're not gonna hit it, you're going to fall short. And if you are like me, there are just reasons rattling where you're like, yeah, I, I did not live up to that even today or this week. It takes ongoing confession and repentance and asking Jesus for help and living in community. It's incredibly challenging. And that's why, for a third time in these short verses, Peter takes us back to the gospel that empowers our holiness again. Verse 24 says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. The word of the Lord and the good news there refer to all the scriptures in general, but the main point of the scriptures specifically is what God has done in saving us. As Christians, God calls us to a different kind of, of holiness. It is not a holiness that is just fixed on, uh, is not uh, focused on externally keeping the rules that you choose to value more than the other rules, but in the end really develops a harsh heart of pride and looking down on others. But it's also not a shallow holiness that is focused on just being nice to everyone around us. It's just wishy washy so called love. God calls us, his people, to a different kind of holiness. And this different kind of holiness calls us to two things if we just sum it up at the same time. It obeys God completely, following his rules and values rather than the world's. And true holiness loves people sincerely and earnestly. From the heart, we give ourselves for the good of others, not looking down arrogantly, but humbly understanding our sinful position. And if we look at the message of the gospel, what is really incredible is that Jesus, our hero, our savior, our Lord, did both of these things perfectly. We're going to fall short. We can't live this out. We're in broken bodies, and we're going to choose to serve ourselves from time to time. But Jesus, our Savior, did. Jesus obeyed God completely. Right? That's why he could take our place on the cross, because he had no sin. He obeyed every one of God's laws perfectly, f- fully, infinitely, in every way that it, could ever be o- that it could ever be obeyed, and he was fully acceptable by God. He was fully approved of by God, and he had not one ounce or twinge or dust of sin on his entire life. Jesus obeyed God completely. He was holy. But Jesus did not use that holiness for himself, right? He could, more than any of us, be the one that cast the stone. But he used his holiness not for his own selfish gain, but for us. Jesus went to the cross using that perfect life rather than for himself, he used it as a substitute for us. He would have been fully within his rights to go to heaven and to enjoy eternity, but he went through the suffering and the shame of death because he loves you, because you are precious to him, and because he wants to bring you into his family. Jesus, our hero and savior, observed all of God's uh, rules completely perfectly, and he loved others earnestly and sincerely. If you wouldn't mind, you can go ahead and bow your heads. just want to leave you with some time to just reflect and think about what this means for you. If you've been following Jesus for a long time, five decades, longer, I just want to invite you to trust Jesus again. Trust him again. This is a lifelong journey of trusting Jesus more than we trust ourselves, and he gave himself for us. And in light of our trust of him, the scriptures say, hey, be holy for I am holy. So I invite you to trust Jesus afresh again today and also to recommit to zeal in pursuing, obeying his commandments and loving others. You may be here and maybe you are not a believer, not sure where you stand. And my invitation to you would be to consider trusting Jesus for the first time even this evening. It's relatively uh, easy to do. It's not complex. Uh, It is simply uh, the posture of the heart that expresses repentance and faith, turning from our sin, the control of our lives, the rebellion against him, receiving the forgiveness that he offers through his death on the cross and resolving in repentance to follow him the best you can, knowing that you'll fall short, but his grace will carry you home. You can tell him your desire to do that on your own now. There's no incantation or special prayer, but we'd love to help you begin a relationship with Jesus. If you want to grab us, note it on your card, anything, we'd love to follow up with you. When Jesus captures our mind and our heart and affection, then and only then can we walk more and more in a true gospel holiness inside and out.